<clears throat> so if you were um, a Jew living in Palestine um, about 2,000 years ago, under the occupation of the Romans and with a very corrupt uh, religious system, you probably felt like there was very little of the glory of God um, evident in your day-to-day -day experience. And perhaps we feel the same occasionally. We live in a world where churches are in decline, where moral values are being eroded, uh, the presence of evil seems to grow more and more. And although generally we know that um, we live in a world which does match um, at least some of the prophecies about what the end times will be like, um, nevertheless, there's no clear sign of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. Not that we should expect such a sign because the scripture tells us that he will come like a thief in the night and we encourage ourselves we're told to look at the signs of the times um, so we know that the Lord Jesus could indeed come tonight or tomorrow and you know that is um, very much a reality but my point is I guess is that when things seem to be you know less than encouraging you know, we can't sort of look to the return of the Lord Jesus in quite the same way that the old children's chorus implies we can. You know the one which gives us the, ten, the countdown, 10 and 9, 8 and 7. You know, sometimes, I remember at Millennium New Year, they had these big clocks up on towers and things, didn't they? Big digital clocks counting down. Wouldn't it be great if we had one of those for the Christian world today and we could just see the countdown and say, oh great, we've only got, only got two years, five weeks, seven days and ten hours to go before the Lord Jesus return, returns. We don't have that. And maybe that's not exactly what the shepherds were thinking as they kept watch over their flocks at night around Jerusalem. But maybe they had similar thoughts about the fact that all the prophecies of old, well, no Messiah, no hope, no glory in, in Israel in their experience. Maybe they were feeling quite discouraged until in the darkness of that night they witnessed something absolutely amazing, didn't they? Something absolutely incredible, something unprecedented. They saw the first sign of the glory of God returning to Israel. This uh, passage is going to be probably read quite a lot over the next uh, few weeks as we get into the, Chris, um, the Christmas season. But let me just uh, read what happened that night because it serves as a bit of an introduction to what we will be looking at a little bit later on. So reading in Luke chapter 2 and from verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. An amazing night on the hillsides of, um, of Bethlehem. Glory shining all around. And then it went dark again for about another 30 years. And only a few people, those who were closest to the Lord Jesus as he grew up, uh, knew anything about there being something special about to happen. Of course, we're talking about the miracle of the incarnation here. Um, not only that God could be born as a man, but that he was able to hide his intrinsic glory so well that, as we know, Isaiah was able to describe him as having no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah 53 verses two and three. No glory in that vision, was there? No glory there. And likewise, Paul could write to the Philippians saying that he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So what happened to the glory? The glory that the shepherd saw, where, where, where did it go? Well, it was always there, wasn't it? It just wasn't on show. And yet, the Apostle John, as we know in the opening chapter of his gospel, he could write saying, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John may have been referring to the many less obvious signs of the Lord's glory that he witnessed um, throughout those three years um, that he spent with Jesus during his public ministry, um, his, his teaching, um, his, his miracles, um, some of them were a lot less subtle than others, um, but there were, many of the miracles were sort of just quietly done. Um, and, and his godly character. We would say all of those things actually reveal um, aspects of the glory of the Lord. Um, but the event I think that John must have been thinking about most when he wrote those words, I think, was the one that we're going to read about and have a look at this afternoon. Um, and we find it in Luke chapter 9. And this is the, uh, the, the passage that we're directed to for our, our next subject in our series. So Luke chapter 9, and we are reading from verse 28. The heading in my Bible is the Transfiguration. 
About eight days after Jesus said this, now this, this passage follows on, obviously, from one of the passages that we looked at last week. Some people think that what verse 27 is talking about, at least in part, um, is something that was, that was fulfilled um, in what we're going to read about. Verse 27, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And it's suggested, some commentators think, that, the, um, that what Jesus was referring to, at least partly, was um, the evident coming of the kingdom of God that would be displayed in what at least three of the disciples were going to see with their, their own eyes. Now, whether or not that's the case, um, I don't know, but it's a, it's a thought that, that, that appeals to me, so I thought I'd share it. But the passage, let's start again. Verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was talking about. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. It's hard to visualise, um, I suspect, but just try to imagine the scene. We read that the appearance of his face changed. Now, Matthew's Gospel adds a little bit more to that, Matthew's Gospel tells us that his face shone like the sun. So if you've ever looked directly at the sun, you just know how bright, how blinding um, that can be. And it says that his clothes were as bright as lightning. Now keep in mind that his clothes were just ordinary clothes. So this was the brightness of his glorified body shining through the, um, the clothes. And it was like lightning. Think how bright that is. And as if that wasn't enough, then they were surrounded by a cloud, which is possibly like the cloud that we read about in the Old Testament, the one which appeared at various times as an expression of the, the presence and the glory of God. So it's no wonder that Peter, James and John were all um, quite afraid uh, at, at this point. Now we don't read about it ever happening again. It's like Jesus gave them this one bright uh, thing in, in addition to all of the other um, encouragements and evidences that, um, that, that Jesus gave to his disciples, but things that would no doubt 
be explained away or um, you know, people would sort of give other explanations for them as they, as they do today. So although the disciples would have no doubt looked back on many of the things that they saw with their own eyes and they would, they would always cherish, cherish um, them as being evidences of what they'd seen, it just seems to me that knowing the darkness and the difficulty of everything that the likes of James and John and Peter would face along with the others, he gave them this one extra bright thing that they would never, ever forget. They would always be able to say, um, as John did, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's important, isn't it, to try and keep hold of those bright moments, those uh, encounters with God. It might not be like the road um, to Damascus, uh, or the road to Emmaus, um, for that matter. Um, but experiences where we are conscious of God working in our life in, 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 in one way um, or another. It's important to cherish those bright moments and keep hold of them in our memories to encourage ourselves or to encourage others when perhaps God um, seems to be more distant. So that's just a little um, thing I'm taking from, from this, that the disciples will have looked back on this, um, the three of them, and I'm sure the others with second-hand information as Peter, James and John tried to, <laughs> their best to explain them to the others eventually when they, when, when, when they told them what had happened, eventually um, they would have sensed something of the excitement and enthusiasm that the other three had. And that would have been something, I think, that they would, very, they would have held on to very specially. And I'm suggesting that there are things, perhaps not quite so bright in our own experiences, that we should try and hold on to as well to encourage us during darker times. Why Moses and Elijah? Now, Moses and Elijah, they had a couple of things in common, in addition to the fact that they were servants of, of God. Um, they had both had mountaintop experiences of meeting God. Um, and actually, as it happens, both of them on Mount Sinai, although when Elijah had, um, had his experience, it was called um, Mount Horeb. Um, but um, Moses on Sinai, Elijah later on on the same mountain, hundreds of years between, they had very special experiences with God on a mountain, and here we are on a mountain again. Um, also, both of them departed this world in quite extraordinary ways. Um, Elijah, as we know, in a, a chariot of fire. Um, Moses also, um, not quite in, in, in quite uh, such a spectacular way as Elijah, but um, we know that Moses wasn't allowed to go into the um, promised land because of his earlier sin. Um, but it's interesting, um, Moses, it says, died on a mountain. He went up a mountain and, and, he, and he died there. And, and God himself, it says, buried him in a secret place. So they both had interesting <laughs> and extraordinary ways of, um, of, 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 leaving, um, of leaving this world. But I think probably the reason why it was Moses and Elijah um, here is because of what they represented. Um, Moses was the great lawgiver and Elijah was um, one of the greatest of the prophets. 
And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's what they were talking about with Jesus. It says that they were speaking about his departure, which Jesus was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And that can only have been his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his departure, his ascension. And the events, I would imagine, also leading up to those events. Um, And that, of course, is what the law and the prophets had all been foretelling and um, foreshadowing in many, many different ways. And here we have Jesus bringing all of that to life for his two faithful servants. Put yourself in the shoes of Moses and Elijah for a moment. They'd faced many difficulties in their, in their lives of service, um, hadn't they? Great difficulties. But as Hebrews 11 tells us, they didn't receive the ultimate reward. They didn't see the final fulfillment of what their lives of service were, were all um, working up to. They didn't receive what was promised, um, Hebrews 11 says. And here, maybe for the first time, Jesus is explaining it all for them, how their long service and many sacrifices had um, foreshadowed his far greater work and, and, and far greater sacrifice. And I, I wonder if their hearts were burning within them in the same way as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when the Lord Jesus went through very similar things, explaining to them how everything that had been written before in the Old Testament had foreshadowed him and his life. My point is that one day that could be us. I mean, seeing Jesus face to face and understanding the what's and why's of every question that has remained unanswered down here. As Paul wrote, and I um, quoted this earlier, 1 Corinthians 13, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We kind of imagine that you know, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, that they, they'd come right from heaven and they actually already knew all of this already. Well, we, we just don't know. And it just appeals to me that as the Lord Jesus was talking them through all of these things, maybe he was answering all the what's and why's of their own experience. And as I say, I like, it appeals to me that maybe one day the Lord Jesus will, do, will be sitting down with us. So, next point, Um, and this is just a little point, but um, we almost missed all of this uh, because the disciples were a little bit sleepy. Um, And and actually, we don't know of how much of the conversation they actually heard for themselves. It may be that the Lord Jesus had to tell them on the way back, back down the mountain, what it is they've been talking about. They might not have heard any of it at all. Why? Because they were sleepy. And if there's a little lesson in that, it's just, I think, about keeping alert. Because when we're sleepy and not alert, that's when we miss sometimes the very best stuff. But that's not the point, the, 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 the last point I want to bring out. 
The last lesson I want to talk about is from Peter's offer to build little tents for everyone. Ah, bless. Um, nice idea, isn't it? What on earth was he thinking about? I think it's quite funny that Luke felt the need to actually point out in his gospel what a stupid idea it was when he actually <laughs> writes down that Peter just did not know what he was talking about. Um, but that's what you know, Peter suggested. But I think there's a serious point here. Because did you notice that Peter only said this as Moses and Elijah were leaving? It seems that he thought that he had to say something or do something to stop the party ending. Despite the fact that they still had Jesus. I mean, he was acting as if the most important guests at the party were about to go and all they'd have was Jesus. When Jesus was the far greater one that they still had with them. Maybe that's why God spoke up. In verse 35, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. You see, they didn't need heroes like Moses and Elijah, did they? Because they already had the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Lord of Hosts, whatever superlative titles we can think of. They had God Almighty right there in their presence. So they didn't need lesser heroes like Moses and Elijah. And we should listen to him too. Because as it says in Hebrews 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, like Moses and Elijah, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. We don't have to look any further than Jesus to see the glory of God, do we? And as Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's why we should listen to him. The closing scene to this um, event to me, uh, almost seems to have a cinematic feel to it. It's like the camera zooms in um, as the disciples discover that Jesus was uh, um, alone. And I think that's the point of verse 36. It's not emphasizing that Moses and Elijah have gone because they're not the important part of the story. It's about the focus now being only on Jesus. As I say, it's like the camera just zooms right in to the face of Jesus. And rightly so, because he is and should be the focus then and today in our own lives, isn't it? He's, he's, he's the focus of all of history. Um, a quick um, passage from Colossians 1, I'll just read it to you. Colossians 1, chapter um, uh, verse 15 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And you could read on, it's an amazing, an amazing passage. He is the focus of all history from eternity to eternity. It's all for him. So he absolutely should be the focus, shouldn't he? He's the focus of the Old Testament, as we've already thought. Uh, Luke 24, 27 is where we have that road to Emmaus uh, discord before, between the Lord Jesus and these two disciples. And says, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So he's the focus of history. He's the focus of the Old Testament. We know that he's the focus of the New Testament, don't we? And he should be our focus too, as it says in Hebrews 12. We should be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Like I said at the beginning, we might not always feel like we're living in the light of the glory of God, but if we fix our focus on Jesus, uh, we have all that we need. Um, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's have our closing prayer.